You are listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. Is there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since uh, he's been on the same day as us. He's been in the future, and he's back from the future. Dr. Rashi Bittar, welcome home, my friend. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. It's good to have you back. It was just funny to think that the two weeks in a row, you were actually one day ahead of us, and you still wouldn't spill any secrets, didn't give us any lottery tickets. I don't even know why we're still friends. Man, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't even know why I didn't figure it out. I tried so hard to come up with a formula, but it just didn't work. <laughs> oh, man, but you were you were in glorious Middle Earth for a while, had a great time there, and uh, I'm so glad. Uh, but I'm glad to also have you back. A lot of folks probably missed you and needed you here. So uh, did you adjust well back into the, the, the daily grind of healing that you like to do? Oh, yeah, it was it was right back into it. Um, you know, no, um, no loss of uh, time. I mean, as you know, I... Got back and within I think it was about nine hours I flew out again to Houston to meet with Ty and mm-hmm. um, to get some of the new series done that he's some of the work that he's doing which is very exciting and so uh, yeah everything's moving along just like I never left. <laughs> well, good. So uh, we'll carry on with advanced medicine today. By the way, welcome if you're new to the Robert Scott Bell Show. Dr. Rasha Bittar joins me each and every Monday to kick off the week. We do advanced medicine together. Of course, in addition to all the other places you can hear archives, we have it linked up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. And also you can go to medicalrewind.com. Hundreds and hundreds of hours now of broadcast healing, advanced medicine. Uh, so, Dr. Batar, I thought we'd start today. Interesting story out of our friends from the Alliance for Natural Health. They released uh, a study published in the journal PLOS uh, indicating a substance found in ginger, of all things, is 10,000, not 1,000, 10,000 times more effective than chemotherapy in targeting cancer cells. We've talked about ginger a little bit, but uh, this is pretty interesting that they're analyzing it and validating it. Yeah, I haven't really used ginger for its uh, immunogenic-type properties, but mm-hmm. uh, use ginger as a natural um, anticoagulant, a natural uh, blood viscosity improvement for blood viscosity-type agent, and uh, you know thins the blood. So I've used ginger for that extensively, but I haven't. I, I know that there are some principles uh, that of immune enhancement using ginger, but nothing that we've used clinically ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this is um, interesting to see what what actually they found. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting is we've talked about this too. It's like it's one thing to take chemotherapy. We're not big fans of that, admittedly. Uh, but even if it kills cancer cells, what we found and what was also revealed in, in when Ty put together the truth about cancer, a lot of the docs on there were talking about the fact that the chemotherapy doesn't target what, what's called uh, cancer stem cells. In fact, they're talking about resistance even developing to these chemo drugs, which are devastating to healthy cells, much less the cancer cells that they want to target. And so what's interesting about this finding uh, is that this specific thing within ginger, they call it uh, six shogal. I, I, again, I'm not as familiar with this either, uh, but they're saying it actually targets the cancer stem cells. Yeah, and that's uh, a very important component. So, 
you know, we've talked about also the synergistic components. You can isolate some single components mm-hmm. within plant substances or the naturally occurring substances, uh, and then when you use them in a Petri dish, when they're singled out, they don't seem to have the same efficacy as they did in, in their natural form. And I think that part of that is the combination, because there's a synergistic benefit of some other ingredient within that naturally occurring substance, whereas when you isolate it, it no longer is working in conjunction with that essential cofactor or right. uh, whatever other um, catalyst as necessary that we may not have identified. Mm-hmm. And so this is something common that's seen in science where they'll see something in nature, they'll isolate it, then they'll reproduce it synthetically, and it doesn't work as effectively as the naturally occurring component. And so using something in ginger like this that they've found to be effective um, in stimulating the stem cells, my my first question would be, is it going to work the same way when they start to synthesize it? And chances mm-hmm. are it won't because there's something else that's missing that only occurs in the infinite wisdom of the creator, the way he's exactly. combined it. Yeah, our friend Sayer G from Green Med Info writes about this. It's you know it's interesting as you review the literature and they identify these things. Of course, they typically study them so that they can synthesize and patent derivatives, if you will, of this natural substance. That's where they come up with most drugs, anyway. But as you mentioned, and we've talked about it for years, the synergicity—I was going to say synergicity—that things work together for a reason in the natural world. And even if, let's say, you isolate this form of or, or this isolate from ginger and you succeed at killing cancer stem cells there's always an unintended effect if you will when you synthesize and of course we also acknowledge that if it's done in a vacuum and all you do is target the base for cancer you haven't changed the environment that led to the manifestation of cancer and i think that's something we can't overlook as people are adopting these allopathic thought forms with natural medicines yeah, I, I think that's another essential point, and I'm glad you brought that up, because you might be able to target the stem cells or ty- target the cytochrome P53 component or target, you know, whichever other component, the apoptotic uh, cascade, or you may be able to deal with the uncontrolled cellular proliferation. Fine, all these agents may or may not do those things, and that's great if they do, but the problem is that even if you do get that component controlled, it will come back. It's not a question of if it's going to come back. It's a question of when it's going to come back because the underlying factors that led to the cancer in the first place that led to that change in the field, if you will, uh-huh. the, the terrain, if you will, that allowed that problem to occur in the first place has not changed. You haven't done anything. It's essentially like having a field and you got a weed sprouting up and then you take something and you kill that weed or you do something naturally occurring that prevents that weed from sprouting. Well, that's fine. You sprayed it in the weed and it targeted the weed and it got rid of the weed. But is that going to prevent another weed from popping up somewhere else? And the answer is, of course, it's not because you haven't done anything to change the soil. You haven't done anything to change the terrain. You haven't changed the environment that created the problem in the first place. And so, yes, these things may be good to target certain components, like the stem cells. It's very crucial in, in the entire component of treating cancer. Those are very important components to be addressing. However, if you don't address the commonalities that allowed the cancer to occur in the first place, it will come back. And the sad part is that some of these naturally occurring things that may be targeting certain components will only work for a limited amount of time because then they become refractory because remember cancer is highly mutagenic and highly adaptogenic and it changes and figures out what is happening that's one reason in our treatments we're constantly changing it every week the protocol is different and adjusts so that the cancer can't adapt and mutate and and deal with the cha- uh, deal with the uh, 
the attack, meaning we want to confuse it. We want to mm-hmm. hit it from different angles so it never uh, has an opportunity to rest on its laurels and continue to propagate. Yeah, and of course you're not doing it in a vacuum because you're looking at the entire terrain. You're removing, for instance, the heavy metals, the persistent organic pollutants, the things that precipitate the rise for these aberrant life forms or cancer cells. So it isn't just about neutralizing them. It's about changing the terrain of the body so that you are not a hospitable host to something like that again. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's helping the immune system to get repaired is to detoxify the body and get rid of the substances that caused the immune suppression in the first place is to give the body the nutrients that it needs in order for it to thrive and all those things components together are changing the environment and that's really my uh, initial component in dealing with cancer because a lot of times just doing that effectively those three Mm -hmm. components doing it effectively will then revert those oncogenic cells, those cancer cells, back into the normal state. Right. It's hard to believe, but that is actually not only possible, it, it happens more often than not. And then if the, there's still some remnant uh, cells that continue, aberrant cells that continue to uh, proliferate that, that are cancerous, then you can start using some of these other components to deal with them. But mm-hmm. the first uh, mode of, uh, the, the, the best form of uh, uh, off offense is a good defense, and that defense right. is changing the terrain and preventing it from uh, creating that environment that's uh, hospitable mm-hmm. to the cancer. Well, speaking of terrain and environment, let's go to your colon. I mean, not your colon, Dr. Batar, but I mean <laughs> the colon, right? It's, my phone, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is a, a colon cancer awareness month starts up in March. Let's get a head start on it. I was just thinking about this, and uh, I don't mean to gross anybody out, but I mean, dude, if you can grow cancer cells in your colon, how bad does it have to be? Because think about what your colon is. It's the place where the the last vestiges of the refuse is about to leave the body, and your body is designed to handle that. So it's it's designed to be one of the nastiest places, if you think about it, teeming with microbes and everything. And if you can grow cancer, you know, I'm saying people have worked very hard in this Western world, to eat such garbage, to take such poisons into their body, that even their colon can't handle the crap you're throwing at it. Yeah, that's uh, the, 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 the amazing thing is when you hear things like a Happy Meal from McDonald's <laughs> that's left out and experimented with to see how long is it going to maintain. It doesn't, it doesn't expire. It doesn't go bad. It looks the same 10 years from now. We've heard so many experiments like that. Your colon wasn't designed to take stuff in that can't be broken down. Exactly. And so now you start thinking about not just one happy meal, but however many happy meals, and then you add the, all the other types of foods like that that tend to have um, a confirmation that not even insects or bugs or yeast or bacteria or viruses will grow on it because it's that bad. And now we're pushing that through our colons, through our guts. It's not just the colon. It's actually the entire uh Gastro duodenum, I mean, the the entire gastrointestinal yes. system, because from the mouth all the way down to the anus, it's all a continuum with the outside world. That that's not just the colon, but the small bowel, the stomach, the esophagus, all the way up and all the way down. It's so important to help uh, maintain that uh, in, in its healthiest form by eating a good diet, and that really does make a difference. Versus, even if you didn't eat as good of a diet. It's way, way, way better than eating something that is not digestible, that's not able to be broken down, that even bugs won't uh, eat. Right, yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's the thing here about, think about this. This is the last vestige, the effort at the last stage of, of the alimentary canal before it leaves. 
where it's desperately trying to deal with it. And, of course, that's why we see, I think, one of the big reasons, the high incidences of colon cancer. Now, this doesn't mean don't get checked out because there can be some real serious repercussions if you don't do something. But we're going to give you some options for prevention, much less reversal should it occur for you. So we got a uh, head start on Colon Cancer Awareness Month right now. We've got another segment on that. We've got some more updates from the CDC about sleep. This time not Zika, but on sleep deprivation and what it leads to. Lots more healing to go. Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rasha Bittar right here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. Making sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. All right, back at it. We were we mentioned March is the colon cancer awareness month. Of course, they designed it to get everybody in and screened, and and get a colonoscopy. And uh, Doctor Batar, again, we're not. How do we say this? We're not against screening per se, but we do want you to know that there are risks associated with it. And if you, by and large, eat a different diet than most of your fellow Americans you're not as likely to be at risk for manifestation of this this sort of colon cancer that they almost expect. Well, yeah, probably every we should screen everybody because everybody's at risk. I don't think everybody is at risk based on lifestyle. There are different cancers that form in different places for different reasons. Uh, as I travel around, all these thoughts in my head, Dr. Batar, I want to come back to the so-called colonoscopy and the risk I want people to know about. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think there are certain people with uh, certain types of risk behaviors or certain type of lifestyle uh, choices that are at a greater risk for developing certain types of cancer. So uh, there's no doubt about that. I agree with that 100%. So, but on the, on the, you see, right now I think they're telling you if you're over 40, over 45, I don't know if they're saying annually they want to do this colonoscopy. I've had family members in the past, my elders, year, and this is a long time ago, one in fact was hospitalized because they perforated a colon in a, in a routine colonoscopy. And what, this is not like 0.1% of the time this happens. This is uh, probably far more than they'd like to admit. Yeah, this is probably across the board with any of the procedures that are done. Um, there's a relatively significant incidence of what we call iatrogenic complications. So iatrogenic, for those that don't know, that's a medical term. That basically means doctor-induced. And uh, just looking at things such as, uh, let's say, doing a percutaneous transluminal coronary angioplasty, the PTCAs, uh, those have about a 4% chance where the, the uh, dye, when they do an angiogram prior to the PTCA, the dye will cause a spasm within a coronary vessel and induce a heart attack. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's a significant percentage of perforations from colonoscopies or any of these routine procedures. You know, like you said, it's not a 0.1% type thing. It's you know, two, three, five percent. Wow! And some people yeah. would say, "Well, two percent isn't that significant." Well, you know, it's two out of a hundred. Now, you know, would you take a flight if there was a two out of a hundred chance that your plane was going to crash? I mean, right. I, I don't know. I, I think well, that's kind of uh, uh, high risk. So, yes, you you are correct, Robert, that people should be very uh, aware of the complications. And of course, there's this thing called informed consent. And mm-hmm. so they'll they'll give you informed consent. And they'll put down that there's a risk for that. You know, this can happen, that can happen. You can perforate, you can die, and it's it's always a matter of routine. And so really, the the person, the individual, um, it's downplays and minimized so that the individual that's signing that form 
mm. doesn't feel like it's a big deal. And, and I'm not saying that everybody's like that. My, my point is that it is downplayed and it happens. The complications happen all the time, even even to the point of like people going in for you know a gangrenous foot and they're going in for an amputation and they cut off the wrong foot. I mean, wow, this is not yeah. something uncommon. It happens all the time. When I was uh, an ER doc at Richmond Memorial Hospital, one of the nurses that uh, was you know long term in in that ER for like 35 years before I even got there. Uh, told me about her husband who came in for a bunionectomy, just a routine, in, in good health, uh, yeah. farmer, came into the hospital, this is like five years before I met her, came in for a routine bunionectomy and died uh, because of uh, a complication in the surgery and got an infection and ended up dying within like four or five days. Wow. So, th- you know, there's all sorts of... Uh, Complications that can occur. It's not just perforation with the with the. Well, but but the thing is, Doctor Batar, sometimes correct me if I'm wrong, but they'll perforate and they won't know they perforate. You go home and you think you're fine, and you can end up in the ER a few days later. Well, it's usually the next day or something. Yeah, perforation. We've had that case where we've taken patients in to do a laparotomy or. Uh, laparotomy is basically an exploratory surgery because you can't figure out what's going on. They got a hot belly, and if they they don't know what happened. And over the you know last couple of days, they start getting sicker. And now they got a fever. And now they're septic. They got a high white count. You open them up, they got pus in the belly, and then you find out from the history they had a, a colonoscopy done five days earlier, and they're on the verge of death because there was a perforation and nobody picked it up. So those right. type of things happen. But you know, I think if we summarize it and look at the entire picture, the entire gamut, the the worst place for a sick person to be is a hospital. Yeah, uh, and that, yeah, that is, is you know, it may sound like a strange thing to say, but there are so many types of uh, the we refer to them as nosocomial infections, infections or nosocomial yeah. bacteria. These are things that are normally not found in most places. They're only growing in the hospitals because there's it's a centralization spot, mm-hmm. a, a concentration area for all these nasty bugs to grow. And right. So well, people get out. If you're in yeah, the hospital, exactly. get out fast. we got to take a break here. By the way, I almost want to say take a silver enema after you have a colonoscopy, if you do, just to be safe. Uh, we're going to be coming back. We'll talk about sleep disorders and also how it impacts the kidneys as well. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. Information is so good, it requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show. We've joked, uh, Dr. Vitar, over the years about, you know, questions to ask your doctor to know if they're, like, the right doctor for you. And I, I, I was half-joking but not, and I'd say, you know, ask your doctor how often he or she has a bowel movement and see how they respond to that question. If they embrace the question and say, you know, I'm glad you asked. That's really great. You're aware. This is how often I go, right? But I think more often than not, the doctor might be shocked and maybe even a little embarrassed to admit that they might be going two or three times a week at best. Yeah, that is a definite, definite indication of poor bowel habits and uh, problems just waiting to occur later on in life. So that's a perfect example right there, Robert, of knowing whether or not you've got good bowel habits or not, if Hmm. you are able to go minimum of twice a day. If you have a, even even once a day, I mean, my idea of a good bowel, uh, uh, for good bowel health is a person that goes to the bathroom at least two minimum, um, preferably three times a day, but 
even if you can just at least eliminate once a day, if I have a person that has chronic constipation and we start getting them to the point that they can actually start having a bowel movement once a day, that's progress. And then more activity, uh, the proper type of diet will help to increase that elimination. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you go into the bathroom once or twice or three times a week, that is a major, major sign of future problems that are just waiting to arise. Right, and there you can anticipate a colonoscopy sometime in your future. We'll say, "Ooh, that doesn't look good." Uh, whereas the you know the regular bowel movements that we talk about, at least once a day, as you said, that's once at least, but two, maybe three. If you eat three meals a day, you should have some kind of cycle that that, that parrots it a little bit closely, uh, as opposed to the sluggishness. Now, <clears throat> I've had a history of uh, bowel issues with the constipation hospitalized as a child, and we've talked about it, but it does it pales in comparison to the Super Bowl commercial about OIC, the new the new ailment or disease coined by the pharmaceutical industrial complex. O OIC stands for opioid induced constipation. Yeah, that's just amazing to me that they've actually created a medical condition uh, and labeled it as such because, you know, it just shows you, Robert, where where we're going. We're we're taking a problem, we're creating a problem from, again, it's, it's that iatrogenic issue. We're creating an iatrogenic issue, and now we name that uh, as if it's a disease process or mm -hmm. something that needs to be um, corrected, and then we treat it as opposed to just stopping the problem in the first place, which is the opioid. Opioid, opioid that right. The, the functioning of the of the um, of the bowel system. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, remember restless leg syndrome. Yep. I mean, magnesium deficiency anyone? Yep. I mean, and, and th there's there's a lot of things like this that actually have been created. You know, the ones that the ones that really come to mind are gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is just nothing more than a deficiency in digestive enzymes. That's it. You don't need to have the carefates and the Pepsids and the and the you know H2 blockers and the uh, proton you know, pump inhibitors and all those drugs. It's just simply give the person a little bit more digestion assistance by giving mm -hmm. them some digestive enzymes. And so we create these acronyms for these disease processes, and then it's another uh, issue that we have to deal with. And so another whole class of drugs are created to deal with this issue, which which never was an issue in the first place. If you just you know take care of the issue, a perfect example is when a person gets. Um, the stomach flu or or food poisoning, and so they have all these drugs to stop diarrhea. Whereas diarrhea is a natural response to get rid of something that's irritating the body. But you yeah. have this whole class of drugs for anti-diarrheal drugs. I mean, so the, you know, just think about all these classes of drugs that we wouldn't need if we just took care of the problem at its at its source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we talk about ways to put out fire safely without harming your healthy cells, and it can be done. Um, and and uh, by the way, again, if you're a new listener. To the Robert Scott Bell Show, every Monday we do Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rashid Bittar. He's also the author of the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Every presentation I do, I feature that book as well as one of the must-read books. So please, uh, if you're not sure about the things you're hearing, you need more, there's a great way to go, great place to go, along with the book TMB, Ty Bollinger and I wrote, Unlock the Power to Heal. We've got a really devastating good news, if I say it that way. Uh, that brings the power to heal back to you. Now, the CDC is revealing some things I want to ask you about. Because, Dr. Batar, you have unusual sleep patterns. You don't seem to sleep like I do, for instance. And everybody's unique. I know there's bio-individuality. Some people need more. Some people need less. But the CDC always tries to generalize. They're a bunch of collectivists. And they say, everybody needs at least seven hours. I don't know if that's true or not. I know that I tend to do better with that. But uh, they're reporting that... Uh, 
is maybe a, a third of all Americans are not getting enough sleep. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I, I would I would say that sleep probably is a good thing, and people should get as much as they can. Um, I actually don't sleep that much, and it's not, you know, it's not because of. Um, I mean, I love to sleep. Don't get me wrong. I think <laughs> it's more because when I was doing general surgery residency, and you know, you get used to that. And then I was working in the emergency rooms when I started my clinic after I got out of residency. After I got out of the military, um, I was working four nights in the ER and I was working four days in the clinic and so you know that's two times in a week you go pulling a 24 hour Um, so it's it kind of your body gets adjusted to it the human bodies are so amazing it can adjust so many different things so it's not by choice necessary I'm not doing it because I think oh I'm cool for not sleeping I I mean Mm -hmm. I I wish sometimes that uh, I was sleeping more because I, I actually I actually love sleeping and it's just that there's so much to do in a day, you know what I mean? So, yeah, you're, you you grab life by the marrow, you do, my friend, and uh, it's it's amazing what you are accomplishing. And I will say that. But uh, if you if you want sleep, get it. And uh, and I think finding out the right amount for you is important. Again, there is some level of differentiation between people, uh, and I think this is one of those things. Though you must be active during the day. Because oftentimes, you know, you're not tired, you're restless at night. There's a lot of reasons. One of the things is lack of physical exercise and movement during the day. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Robert, because I think if people um, do end up having a lot of uh, activity, um, they will they will exhaust themselves and they will actually do very, very well as far mm-hmm. as having restful sleep. Because one of the things for me is that, when I hit the sack, before my head even hits the pillow, I'm out. Mm-hmm. So there's no loss of um, no moments waiting to go to sleep. sleep. I mean, yeah. I, I go right into you know rapid eye movement type sleep. I mean, I can take a cat nap and and be up in 30 minutes and felt like I've slept or like overslept because I'm going yeah. into you know and you sleep seven hours or eight hours. You're only sleeping about 30 to 45 minutes in rapid eye movement sleep, and it's really important for people to remember that the reason sleep is so important is because it is allowing your system to recharge. Reset, it's actually you know. where your body heals. It's actually where your body grows. That's one reason a baby uh, spends so much time sleeping, mm-hmm. because they're actually growing. So I, I would highly recommend nobody cheat on sleep. Yeah, the, you make a great point there. That is the time. You know, in, in Chinese medicine, they talk about the activity at night in a particular time frame when the liver is most active. While you're not doing all the, the movement during the day, suddenly, you know, the energy flows into the detox systems. And th- that may be the relationship here with a study that came out about sleep apnea. They're saying it increases your risk for chronic kidney disease. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, that, isn't that interesting? But, of course, tell me something that you can put in the body that will go first to the kidneys, directly to the kidneys without passing through the liver. Is there a pathway there that I'm unaware of? Well... I, everything has to has to go through the. I mean, everything. You know, you'd say water, but water is in, gets in blood, and the blood's being sent sure. Yeah, yeah. But outside everything. of that, because as I look at this and I say chronic, they always go to kidneys because they seem to have a difficult time in allopathic medicine detecting something that I call as homeopath liver congestion. You know, by the time they diagnose the liver, the enzymes are elevated. It could be years further than somebody sensitized in a more natural form of medicine would say. There's something wrong with like the liver chi, which of course. This, the kidneys are pat. My point is that they're passively downstream from the liver, so they don't diagnose the liver. They diagnose the kidneys. The kidneys would have never been hammered if the liver was up to speed and doing all of its work, and then passing what is appropriate down to the kidneys. Well, I, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, Robert. I do agree with you in context when uh, you certainly want to address the liver issues because, yes, they will pass certain things down. But there are certain things, for example, mm-hmm. heavy metals will not get processed through the liver, but heavy metals will get processed through the glomeruli. And they get actually, on biopsy studies, they've seen that the kidney parenchyma, the tissue of the kidneys, is actually much higher concentration in metals. So when you chelate an individual, for example, you, a person that's got really poor kidney function, we've actually seen their BUN and creatinine get worse initially, and then all of a sudden it starts to improve. And the reason is is because there's a concentration of the heavy metals in the kidney. In the kidney tissue, right. That, yeah, it's, as it's, soon as you start cleaning that out, then the kidneys mm-hmm. start to improve. But at first, it's like all the sludge that's collected in the filter. Think of it that way. Right, right. No, and that, that's, but that is also reinforcing the point of when the liver is not able to do its job or if you're overwhelming the liver, again, the kidneys are going to suffer because it will be passed on. And I've mentioned this in terms of why I use the silver hydrosol as opposed to other forms on a regular basis, because if you're using silver salts, the, the liver is, has a hard time to bind through metallothionines, glutathione, uh, selenium-dependent pathways. And then the salts are passed to the kidneys. The kidneys don't filter them out that efficiently. And that's where you get the bioaccumulation starting. So it's, it's also about fate and transport. And, you know, I, I like to look at the connection between all of these organs to help folks understand it. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. Um, and I guess what I was saying is that the, liver's, the liver is not, a, uh, is not an organ that's necessarily uh, being relied on to remove heavy metals as opposed to the liver, um, I'm sorry, as opposed to the kidneys, which are one of the primary areas that you want to uh, help focus when you're trying to remove heavy metals. But you're absolutely right. There's nothing in the body that I know of that goes into the body and then, you know, at some point doesn't go through the liver. So right, that's right. a very, very true statement. Yeah, so in in that context, which is why we always say, and in Chinese medicine, they've been saying it for about 5,000 years, the key to everything is the liver. Now, we're not saying don't pay attention to the kidneys, don't pay attention. No, that's not the point. But the point is you got to give some vitamin L to that liver, however you do it. And there are so many ways to do it, whether it be minerals like selenium and other things, whether it be herbs, homeopathics. These are the things that proceed even when we talk about colon health. They all go hand in hand. The GI system, a gastroenterologist looks at the liver, do they not? They absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely do. And that's one of the things that's so important to remember that the liver is the oil filter of the body. And if you just remember that a car is not going to run very far if you don't change that oil filter every five or 10 or 15,000 miles, depending on what type of oil. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the liver, you know, we can't just go out there and change the liver, but that's <laughs> the same role that that liver is playing. And so it's very important to take care of our liver. And any type of drug that we're taking, that affects the liver, we need to be very careful of. And that's why Tylenol is one of the major causes of liver problems. It's an over-the-counter drug. There's more people that try to attempt suicide. Um, Yeah, utilizing that. You're right. Well, let's take a break here. We'll be back wrapping it up. We'll talk a little bit more about the liver. Maybe we'll get into the HPV controversy as well. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Always a great discussion with my good friend Dr. Roger Bittar here at Advanced Medicine. You can always find him also at drbuttar, drbittar.com, linked up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. And Medical Rewind, if you ever miss a show, easiest place to get it. 
what else we got to do here? We've got some Zika stories. We got to fit a lot into this last segment. By the way, Dr. Batar was interviewed for the truth about detoxification. So later this year, you're going to be hearing more about some of the things we've just now discussed a little bit, liver, kidney, that kind of thing, pulling the stuff out. Uh, the HPV, they're really push, pushing the PR on this. They're so happy because the HPV rate, whatever that is, in teen girls, they claim it dropped by 60%. The HPV rate. I don't know if they're claiming it's the vaccine that's doing it or less promiscuous behavior. It's not clear. But at the same time, they're probably praising the shot. Another story comes out. We've got it linked up, added just now in Vaccine Impact. Did two medical journals just blacklist Gardasil research showing dangers of the vaccine? So the pushback is on because a lot of scientists and doctors are saying, you know what? Even though we believe in vaccines, those we don't believe in. Yeah, and that's really interesting when it starts happening from the own the own medical profession. You know, it starts. It's interesting uh, what the what the fallout's going to be. And I know that there was a website at least for a while. There was a website, and and I think Robert, you actually had it maybe in your show notes or something mm-hmm. that was uh, talking about the incidence of um, side effects from the guard cell and how many. Girls at Adverse died. events, yeah. Sanevax.org uh, still has that. There's a running tally, and they've actually done such work that certain governments, Japan has you know, completely suspended the use of the vaccine, and others are questioning it. And so I guess the push is on with the PR to say, hey, look, these three types of HPV are no longer happening because we're, we're vaccinating. And then I had uh, Dr. Leon, who's been a, a pathologist for 50 years, work with the guy who developed the PAP test originally in the 20th century, and he said this is a completely bogus claim that the HPV vaccine is a cancer vaccine. It is absolutely not. Yeah, no, it, it's not. In fact, in fact, even if you uh, start to uh, read the literature, e- even the literature doesn't talk about that. They, I think this is a marketing component or it's mm-hmm. a spin that they've created, but it, it's never been marketed as a anti-cancer, at least as far as I know. It's not been approved as an anti-cancer, but they marketed it in that way. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that that's significant. Dr. Lee saying, Sinhang Lee, he was on this program. We talked about that. Very very impressive. PhD, MD, this guy's credentialed out the you-know-what. And he, he's calling them out. He's suing these organizations saying, you know, you people are calling this a cancer vaccine. It is not. There's no evidence to support it, much like there's no evidence to support the claim that Zika is causing birth defects, the virus right. causing microcephaly. It's not there, but yet they're ready to put billions of dollars into vaccines and drugs and pesticides and larvicides. The thing that's the funniest is, though, that if they just looked at it, they'd see that the Zika virus is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. Yes. It's a new marketing spin. Yep, exactly. We had to cover for our friends who are producing pesticides related to Monsanto. We can't have them be at fault and be sued, so we'll blame a virus, an inconvenient virus. The virus wasn't doing really nothing at all, and suddenly, boom, now it's the cause of microcephaly. Now they're saying it's causing Guillain-Barre, which I believe is a vaccine-induced form of semi-paralysis. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting thought because... It certainly could make that, I mean, you could make that correlation because there are many side effects from some of these pesticides that mimic, uh, you know, paralysis type pictures. They're very, very unifocal type paralysis. Um, they're usually mm-hmm. self-limiting and it's self-limiting just because a person's not getting the exposure to that poison anymore. Um, if it's continuous, then it's an ongoing 
poisoning, then they're going to continue to have those symptoms. So that makes sense. I, I haven't thought about that, but that does make sense. Yeah, they say much of the global attention to this virus has zeroed in on a suspected link. So they admit it. No one's saying there's a directly. They all sus- we suspect it. We strongly suspect it. Where's the evidence? Well, the evidence shows quite the opposite, that in only a small fraction of the cases of microcephaly was there any ev- ev- evidence of, my- of the uh, Zika virus. But they don't, they don't go to the next level to say, well, how much Zika virus was present? Because if they had to detect it with PCR, that means it was hardly there at all. Right. That's a very good point. Yeah. There we go. Making good points again, Dr. Batar. Always a a great pleasure, honor, privilege to hang out with you once a week here. I enjoy it, as always, Robert. Welcome back to the States, my friend. Remember, folks, you can uh, hear the archives in many places, including our syndicator, GCN, who hosts them, as well as robertscottbell.com, medicalrewind.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Epic Times, UK Health Radio, and now through SoundCloud. So you've got lots of options. To know that, you tell them, Dr. Batar. The power to heal is yours. Yes, it is. Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.